I'm really pleased to be uh, presenting today with my colleague uh, Pew Pew Thi. Um, we are part of the Myanmar Media and Society Project, uh, and we'll explain a little bit more about uh, what that is and, and how it came about um, over the last few years. Um, I think most of you probably know who I am uh, by this point. Uh, I'm Matt Walton. I'm the Aung San Suu Kyi Senior Research Fellow in Modern Burmese Studies, direct the Program on Modern Burmese Studies here at St. Anthony's College. PPT is a co-founder of NIDO, the Myanmar ICT for Development Organization, um, that focuses on sort of ICT policy, internet policy, um, but also an increasing focus on sort of social media and hate speech and, and things like this. Um, and she, she has, uh, her degrees are from Yangon University and also um, from Chiang Mai University, uh, and she's been working with us on this project for the last, uh, last couple of years. So what we're going to present on today, we've entitled Transforming Memory, Community Re Recollections of Interreligious Peace and Conflict in Myanmar. So this is a kind of ongoing research project, and we're starting to, to uh, sort of discuss the findings um, just in the last couple of weeks. So we're really interested to kind of get people's feedback on, on what, we're, what we've been doing here. So we're presenting today as co-founders of the Myanmar Media and Society Project, also on behalf of our, our friend and colleague Matt Schisler, who couldn't join us for the talk. We founded this project together in 2014, and it's been funded by uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is in the United States, and the Peace Support Fund in Myanmar. Um, if you're interested in the things that we're talking about here or the working papers from the past that we mentioned, um, you can find our first two working papers and different media uh, articles on the Myanmar Media and Society pages on the St. Anthony's website, if anyone's interested in that. So the first phase of this project was trying to get a better understanding of anti-Muslim narratives in Myanmar, especially the logic behind them and how they resonated with people. So we wanted to understand how people's reasoning moved between two particular perspectives. And the first one was Muslims as a personalized threat. The second was the idea of Islam as a collective threat, either to Buddhists or to Myanmar or to a Buddhist Myanmar. We also investigated the ways that people would shift between three different registers, uh, global, national, and localized narratives, um, and, you, and would use all those three together to kind of legitimize a sense of threat. And so our, our reasoning here was to try to better understand this so that we could help people craft responses. And that's the first working paper from, from the group. We conducted this research over the last few years in partnership with youth groups in six different cities in Myanmar. And we chose the cities for regional, ethnic, and religious diversity, and also cities that had different conflict history. One important thing that came out of the research with these youth groups was the difference in available memories of peaceful interreligious uh, coexistence and the difference between generational memories. So for example, young people would say, oh, my parents or my grandparents have memories of growing up, having friends with other religions, um, attending each other's festivals, communities helping each other in times of need or times of crisis. But for the youth, the young people we were working with, their experiences were conditioned by separation, by mistrust, by conflict that's, been, that's characterized recent years. So we were really concerned about the effects on peace building and reconciliation if these collective memories were lost. So the second phase of this project is focused on uncovering these things we call peace histories through oral history accounts. So Pew Pew Thi has led a Myanmar team that's worked with local researchers in six cities to conduct oral history interviews over the past nine months. This was in Yangon, 
Mandalay, Metila, Lashio, Molomyain, and an area in the Irrawaddy Delta. She and the team have conducted interviews with almost 165 people over that time, with another 50 interviews conducted by local researchers. We've also held training workshops with those local researchers in methodology and theoretical framing. And now our team is starting to analyze these interviews in detail, so today we want to share some of them with you. Along with some of the analysis of why we feel that these are valuable contributions to interreligious peace building in Myanmar. One of the outputs from the project, and we're happy to talk about these more in the um, question and answer session, uh, will be a book of these narratives in English and Myanmar language, organized thematically. And so the peace histories that we're going to share today include themes like friendship, interaction with neighbors, engagement in religious activities, engagement in social work, and responding to crises and conflicts. So the first story is from a 47-year-old Hindu man who is a carpenter from Malamian. So he shared with us about his long life friendship with his true friends from different religions. He is Hindu and uh, his friends are uh, Buddhist and Islands. For the people who don't uh, know Myanmar, Molomyan is in Monstay, east of Yangon, and it is, it is a city nearby in the ocean. And it's famous for the black market trade because it is close to smuggling routes. So this man talk about his friend from the same neighborhood. They went to the same school. They play together, drive bicycle race together. They were naughty as usual at, for young ages, drinking together and doing other things. So um, he said, uh, quote, I have three friends. I'm uh, Two already passed away. One passed away in the way and another one was here. We all love each other. We went out together, ate together since I was in two uh, seconds, uh, two standards in public school. They were my they were my neighbors. We went to school together till five standard, and we quit school at five standard as we did not seek for anything. And I started working. We were not we would skip school. We would sneak and smoke with with our our friends, three or four friends. Uh, but during four standard, we became mature and found out what smoking and chewing little nets do to our body. Since then, all of our friends stopped. We were very close. They could eat at our home. They could eat at their, I could eat at their home. Sometimes we gather together, spend night together at uh, my mom's house, upper story. At, uh, at night, we sleep on a veranda. We send, I send Hindu gospel song. We would record and listen again with Katsat. Katsat were popular back then. We would try to help each other with school work, re reciting paragraphs and asking each other questions. After leaving school, we worked together as carpenter. If one of us at, was in trouble, we helped. For example, sometimes when I got sick, we would offer help and we would pay for the medical treatment. When I got sick, they also helped me the same way. Called N. He was, he was poor and his girlfriend's uh, parents did not allow them to get married, so they had to run away together. So the other two friends helped them and even carried the bag of the girl when they ran away. Called 
Before I got married, they helped me plan to run away with my friends. They brought a they bought a wedding dress for me. Well, I ran away first, and then they also started to run away with their partners too. I ran away with my girlfriend from uh, 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 this nearby house, and it was close, so close. They helped me carry the bag, the baggage. So. This is not seeing important. may not seem important, but usually in Myanmar culture, men don't carry women clothing, in as people believe that it can bring back luck. These friends were so close that they were willing to cross that culture boundary and also potentially get get in trouble for helping their friends. So he and his friend tried to overcome hardship in their life together as their family were poor and when the black markets collapsed, they all had to drop out from school and work to support their family. They found jobs together uh, for each other and he went to the, where, the other town and walking at a, a fishing boat together to came back to Molomia in 2003 and one stayed in the way and passed away there. The two came back to Molomia walking together in the same carpenter groups. Even in old age, these two used to meet each other every morning. Whether he he's sick or well, he'd wake me at, at 4.30 a.m. to go and have tea at Ludu Tea Shot. We always go together. His friend passed away two years ago, but it is clear that it was a love lifelong friendship and this man's story may seem very simple and common in fact that is one thing that made it important for many people in Myanmar they have had these friendships across religious life sometimes they don't even think about it in those way but uh, for community that are increasingly being separated along religious line, especially for younger generation, it is important to see that it had been a norm in the country for a long time. So a lot of these stories you'll note have these like very everyday, kind of everyday daily interactions, the sort of quotidian things that, that we feel like we need to emphasize just to remind people that that's been the norm. <clears throat> So the second piece history that we want to share today addresses people supporting each other's religious activities and also working together in social work activities. So Ma Pugh interviewed a teacher in Mandalay who was working at a government school, and she was also helping to run a free school for poor children in her local area. Um, and, and they met to do the interview at her school, which is this small, simple building that just sort of has two walls and covered with a thatch roof. She's a Muslim woman who's very active and confident, and she had made time that evening to talk between two of her classes. <clears throat> she had moved to Mandalay in 1996, but before that she lived in Shan State. Um, and she's Karen, her ethnicity is Karen, and she felt like, um, you know, because she's Karen, and, and Karen very commonly have a Christian, Buddhist, and Muslim within that ethnic group, and because she lived in Shan State in areas that were very ethnically and religiously mixed, it gave her more of an opportunity than most people might have had to experience interactions with different religions. And she told Ma Pu really about this coworker from her school um, who's Buddhist and, and she was Muslim. She described their relationship as being like sisters who support each other in their work and their family problems. She said, quote, Two years after I arrived at this school, she moved here for her first posting, so she had very little service experience. I guided her, and now she has about seven or eight years of teaching service. 
every day we encourage each other. We encourage each other by exchanging the things that we read and the things that we want the children to know. She's a friend who fills out things that I feel like I've lost in my mind, and she also feels the same. As we're teachers, we have the same feelings. So the things that we give each other are similar. And we also encourage each other by saying funny things. As we have so many stresses, sometimes we talk to each other and also cry together. End quote. So one interesting thing is that they really helped each other to do their own religious activities, um, inviting and participating in each other's religious festivals. Quote, Sometimes she would tell me about her religion and I would listen. Although we knew that we're from different religions, our thoughts are the same. Anyhow, she could listen to what I believe and I could also listen to what she believes. I could read the books that she brings for me. She could also read all the books that I wanted her to read. Even though we're from different religions, we have the same thoughts and we can understand each other. When we travel, there are places that she or I can't go or foods that she or I can't eat. So when we go on a journey, we both choose the same thing. We have things we like in common. We have the same thoughts for the children as well. If I think that this child should be treated this way, she also has the same thought. Even though I said she's Buddhist, she's not a pure Buddhist. She's half Hindu, which in this case means one of her parents was Hindu. Uh, for me, for religious festivals, we have aid, Christmas, New Year's ceremonies. And for us, we also really give special consideration to our birthday because of the parents who gave birth to us and to the Lord who takes care of us. So we think about it and we give thanks for that. So on those celebration days, she's my guest. And when she has a Katain ceremony, she invites me as well. Katain is um, a celebration at the end of Buddhist Lent where people provide donations and requisites for monks. Uh, I can't invite her to the meat aid ceremonies because uh, she doesn't eat beef, but I invite her to other aid ceremonies. Uh, on those days, she helps me as well. And we're, when we're going to celebrate Christmas, and if we want to send things to our house, she also wants to be involved. So she knows where she can be involved, and I also know where I should ask her to be involved. For example, if we go to the pagoda together, I can hold the flowers that she's going to donate to the pagoda, but I can't donate it by myself. She understands that. We don't force each other. End quote. So she also talked about the way in which her, their dedication for helping the children is the same. And her Buddhist friend supported her when she started this free school for poor children. And she explained, quote, Since we work in a school, we know that there are lots of students who can't, who can't take tuition classes, which is these extra study classes outside of regular school hours. Not only do we teach them ourselves, I also sometimes have to give tuition fees for those students. My friend also knows about that situation. So one organization wanted to open a philanthropic school, and I told her that I could help in this place, and also asked her where she wants to help. So she helps as much as she can. When we started this school, Do Mithazu, or Our Family School, she was helping in the teaching not only in weekend terms, but also summer terms. Since we established this Do Mithazu school, uh, I've been involved in it for three years. So we've finished six semesters of summer courses and weekend courses. Children who are poor and can't afford the tuition uh, come and attend the school. Children who can afford it also come and join, as their parents like the teaching method. 5% of the children are from a rich, rich families, the rest are from poor families. Many of them are children who are far away from their parents and living with their grandparents. Some of the children only have a father or mother. They're also children who don't have either of their parents and are being taken care of by their grandma or their aunts. <clears throat> they have someone who will take care of them, but they're poor financially and mentally. So um, 
during the school days, some students go to an Arabic school from morning to night and, and to other schools too. So in my school, I don't just teach them school lessons, but also the things that they have to know in order to engage with society, in order to become a person who loves others, also to value themselves and give other people space. My first objective is to promote education and social life. When I started to do that topic, I also discussed it with her. We discussed what training the children would need in this area. I also talked with her about which areas we should focus more on. And instead of teaching many lessons, we think that we will teach the students how to learn to look for the answer in the problem. We discussed this together and developed those lessons together. We worked together with the teachers who understand this work, teachers from the same or different religions from me who are working in this school. The main thing is education. If you're not educated, you'll believe everything that other people say. That's why I decided to do this humanitarian work related with education in this sensitive area for the children. The main reason is that I want to change the society through education, end quote. So I should, I should say also, um, you know, these are the things that these people are saying might not be very surprising to you. Um, it's a good thing, I think, if they're not very surprising. Why we think they're particularly important is that they're, they are sentiments that aren't, don't seem to be commonly expressed in Myanmar today. People don't have a chance to talk about these. They talk, rather than talking about a Muslim woman who runs this free school and is also a teacher, people will talk about their worries related to madrasas and teaching curriculum in, in Islamic schools, right? So having these, these kind of normalized uh, um, examples and narratives, it, it seems very important. So we also know that it's very common for people to work together uh, um, across religious groups in activism or in social work in Myanmar. There's a long history of this. But these days we're also seeing groups um, and activities and different civil society groups that are more exclusive to a particular religion, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. Um, so it's important to kind of recognize that this, this work is still happening across religious lines. We also really like the way that she talks about supporting each other in religious ceremonies with her friend, especially because it does seem, again, kind of anecdotally, that there's limited understandings of other religions and other religious practices among people in the country um, and less engagement with each other's religious uh, rituals and ceremonies. So she talks about the respectful way that they did these activities not pushing someone to do something that was against their religion or that made them uncomfortable. Even sharing information and books about each other's religion was done in a respectful way that seemed to strengthen their bond and their friendship. So the next three uh, peace memories uh, tell about the movement of crisis and conflicts. The first is from a woman from Mendeley. She does laundry uh, for uh, our mutual friends and then we met at that friend house. She was willing to talk with us because of our friends, but don't really understand the, uh, our project at first. But once we explained and she started talking and suddenly she became a much more active speaker and seemed happy to be talking about all these things. She is very proud to be Mandalay native and the member of her neighborhood. And the moment she uh, we asked her about her neighborhood. She could describe the scene very effectively and also could compare uh, between past and, and present. And she was very happy to talk about her relationship with her neighbors. 
and Mandalay is a city in the dry zone for Myanmar and so there's a lot of fire and fire that break out and especially in the summertime. So therefore people in Mandalay are very careful about fires and she was talking about how people held each other in their neighborhood when a fire broke out in that area. So quote, in 1994 there was a fire that broke out in the past we only heard about it but we had we had never seen it before we just saw it when it happened in our session at the time there was a very few television so when they show us a movie we went and watched at nearby house uh, with a television the fire started from a one man one woman and house in the past in the section there is if there is a fire we could easily stop it a young man from our session will very unite if it was concerned with fire so i just thought that the fire would be stopped easily that time as well but it was not the place where the fire broke out was close to our house so we ran very quickly to back to our house we packed our belongings and we carried things that we could carry and we left the one that we couldn't bring we brought our children and ran my husband was not at home at that time he sold uh, military material at Zijo at a Mandalay market uh, he ran back home when he heard about it, heard about the fire, but the fire had already broken out in our session. The compound behind, behind our house was totally bent down. It was Chiran and you from our session who stopped the fire. It was really surprising. It was a man when the monks was sitting exam. The men sat exam at number two high three high school at that time when they heard about that fire they ran to this place they held us carry thing in our session as much as they could for example the house beside our house repairs TVs so they carried those TVs to the monastery they asked the owner to come and get at the monastery because when people heard about the fire they just ran away so the monks didn't know who the owner was. After that, people went and took back their things from the monastery and they got all their things back. The monks helped people by keeping things. They did not stand aside because our session is a Muslim, se Muslim session. If fire broke out in Buddhist session, the Muslim men would also go and help them. The fire is a danger. All people will not be able to run and children were left behind. So if there is a fire, a children from our session do not discriminate against religion, but they will help them all. End quote. These things, like the monk helping with the TVs and things, were things that make her very proud to be from Mendeley. And she said it was like Mendeley culture. And in our research, we found uh, where the people could use this sense of solidarity, share sense of, or share sense of threat to have a stronger sense of community across religious line, even uh, to convince people not to take action that met intensively a potential conflict. 
So one of the challenges in this moment of crisis or conflict is that it can be easy for the people to blame a whole group for something done by a member for that group. But we have written about this before in our second working paper with a case study that look at uh, at a fight between a Buddhist woman and Muslim men, where the Buddhist woman, uh, Buddhist man was killed. There was no evidence. That is what for a religious reason, but some people wanted to frame it in that way. So here we have two examples where the people did not see a conflict through a religious lens or saw their identity that were more important. So we interview 74 years old, a Buddhist educator, women's retired government officer in Natila. Um, Metila is an, in the middle central of a country and it is also uh, an important business city in Myanmar. And she is, is uh, very well informed about the uh, political situation of uh, her time today. It is not a uh, common thing for the women, as, especially for older women like her age, to talk about the politics and things in Myanmar. So she is a kind of uh, she's very active and doing social work and also kind of a uh, 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 influential person elder in in her neighborhood also so she have a kind of strong personality a confident woman confident women so um, I went to see her house to see her at her house and she brought me to a kitchen and making fried vegetables and when I explained about our project she was a uh, very happy to hear it, hear it, and then she really want to talk to someone and who is interested in her and her experience and her life story. So then she started talking about her childhood, neighborhood, describing in detail the picture of uh, her neighborhood, how it looked like, and she she is the one who did not need to encourage uh, to talk. Uh, with the only one question, she would give me a long, detailed answer, and also in the answer to answer uh, each question with uh, giving two parts like past and present. And she shared her experience of a fire that broke out in her neighborhood as well. When she it it was when she was sixteen years old. And a fire started from a Muslim family house, and no one was taken as a religion. She said, quote, at the time, Muslim men rented a house and sold chickens. They used, to they used a fireplace, and they did not have electricity. They had to use firewoods. As a wind wasn't blowing, she, he made a lot of winds, and he did not check the wood roof situation, so the roofs were take a leaf uh, wood make with leaf so he was about 15 and 16 year old so and he did not know about that uh, it's he only knew when the house owner told him and as the rules were made with leaf and a fire suddenly break broke out and the whole house was banned it it's good that no one was hanged we all we were all asleep, but our parents were not. Well, not. Then our parents asked us to leave, and we have to flee with our nightdress. My little sister and little brother also left together. 
my older brother flew with his bicycle. He was half asleep at the, at that time. Nobody said that it was because of because of he was a Muslim. He was just climbing, and then a uh, uh, Burmese man can also be clumsy. He was punished by the authority, but no one attacked him because he was a Muslim. End quote. So another respondent from Yangon is a former political prince. He is a former political prince and now an an elderly member from a young age. Now he work he work as a publisher. He is a well connected among uh, prominent political figures. He is a Muslim and has a strong attachment to his neighborhood. But it was from the past and now it's changed. He told us about the unity of a different religions in his own neighborhood and how people were active socially and politically and proud of their neighborhood identity. He's trying to help, uh, now he's trying to help rebuild that culture with young generation and he's talking about the previous culture, how much people love each other. Uh, he said, Called. In our street, there were two Muslim houses, including mine. There were 48 Buddhist households. It wasn't like a kind of building. It's somewhat like a building with five big rooms. So there was only a bamboo wall between one home and another. Now people have proper now people have a proper building, but you know people love each other very much. There was not any problem at all. I even felt like I was born in a Buddhist family. For example, when friends, uh, his mother uh, has already passed away, but I still remember their family. Whenever my mom hit me. He, she did not let my mom hit me. She would tell my mom, don't hit my son, and would take me to her home. Since I was little, I had meal at her home. In the past, the street were very united. Like above street and below street, there were four or five Islam's home. There were no problems. Even there, even if there was a fight between two homes, no one would notice in the street. There was no revenge or anything. Even if someone used foul language, there were no mention of religions. Just if you dare come out, just like that. Just one another, just when other things don't get into a fight with this street and another street. Because all the people from this street will get involved. Our street was named Crow Street. Now, we might not want to support neighborhood and fight street against each other, but it is important to remind people that there are many examples of solidarity that's across religious line. This man was obviously proud of his neighborhood identity and thought that, that more important in some way his religion than uh, his religious identity. So the last <coughs> peace history that we want to share today comes from a Muslim man living in a town in central Myanmar. He traced his ancestry back generations to Burmese Muslims who had made the Hajj to Mecca.
His grandfather had donated to the famous Ubain Bridge in Amarapura, outside of Mandalay. Some of his relatives, including his uncle and other grandfathers, were village heads during the British colonial era and then after. Others played important roles in national and local government and administration. These, this was a large landowning family and farming family uh, with hundreds of acres that also included tenant farmers. And his grandfather was a prominent community member who often supported ceremonies and festivals from the area's different religious groups. His family donated land for the local Muslim graveyard, and he would also regularly feed the whole village with biryani at a festival at the end of the Buddhist Sabbath month. His father even attended a monastery school when he was young, so learned to recite Buddhist texts even though he was Muslim. Since his grandfather's time, his family had developed a close relationship with the local monastery that adjoins their land, and so they donated land and other things regularly. And in return, the monks allowed them to store their goods on the monastery grounds. In the following quote, he explains this relationship, including the time that his grandfather was particularly honored by the head monk of the monastery. He said, quote, The previous monk had asked other people at the monastery to take care of my grandfather's family members. On aid day, we go and offer them beef or snacks. We also offer them meals. So when we have beans or patty from our fields, we do not have to bring it back to our home, but keep it in the monastery. If our land is flooded, we can go and keep our beans and patty in the monastery too. We also keep our carts and cows in the monastery and ask the little monks to help us take care of them. Uh, we also help them use our carts to collect meals for the monks. One time they told us that they wanted to fence the compound with brick, and we helped them with it. At that time, there was no brick machine, so we had to make the bricks by hand. My grandfather even donated gold. This was something that the Buddhist community told us about. Years ago, when the local monk was going to India, it was not easy at that time, so people sent the monk to the old airport by cart, and then we also brought him back to the village when he returned. When the monk returned, my grandfather wanted to bring him back by himself, so he went and welcomed him at the airport. When the monk left the airplane, he went directly to my grandfather's cart to follow him. But the monk's other followers had also made special preparations for him, and they asked my grandfather to go to the monk with them, to, sorry, to tell the monk to go with them, as they didn't dare to ask the monk themselves. So our grandfather told the, the monk to follow the other people, and he did. It's been a good relationship generation after generation. When they have a meal donation for the monks, we also donate. But we don't ask them to put our names, as we're from a different religion. We ask them to put the monk's name. End quote. So one important aspect of this man's narrative of this long-standing close relationship between this prominent Muslim family and a Buddhist monastery is that it is really rooted in these quotidian interactions that are part of the fabric of everyday life. The farmers needed a place to store paddy and beans, so they were able to use the monastery. They would also support the monastery through regular donations, special requests, donating land, building a wall, helping the monks to collect food. This is really common throughout a lot of our, the stories that we collected, but it's, it's, we also want to emphasize that it's these everyday moments that have the potential to, over time, reinforce and build special kind of exemplary relationships, such as the one that this man described, especially between his grandfather and the monk. The, the idea that a monk returning from India would initially choose to honor this man's Muslim grandfather rather than his Buddhist followers says a lot about the mutual respect that he believed was present in that relationship. And it wasn't just personalized in that individual relationship, but also institutionally reaffirmed over time as 
as different monks, subsequent monks, would you know, have the same relationship with the family. The man told us that they could visit the monastery freely and were very friendly with the monks. Uh, he even felt comfortable asking the monk an awkward question about whether, the, whether or not the monk could levitate, as was rumored, um, something that Buddhists might not have felt as comfortable asking about. The man also related a time when the monk intervened to, um, to allegedly de-escalate uh, a tense situation that could have erupted into wider violence. He said, quote, Before the first monk passed away, there was a riot, and this was in and around Mandalay in 2001. Mosques were destroyed, and a monastery was burnt down. At that time, some young people discussed among themselves and told the monk that they were going to go and burn down uh, a Muslim village. The monk called the youth and told them that we have been living here together peacefully. Whatever happens in other parts of the country, we have to live peacefully here. If they went there and did that, they might not be able to come back freely. Nobody would allow them to do it. As the villages are connected, if one village was burnt down, it would continue to the other villages as well. So he told them to kill him first if they really would like to do it. And they listened to the monk and didn't go and burn the Muslim village. End quote. So we know that similar situations to this have occurred, uh, of monks diffusing volatile situations or even harboring and protecting Muslims during riots. This happened most recently during the episodes of violence that occurred across Myanmar between 2012 and 2014. Um, and what's important here is maybe less the sort of accuracy of this story, but more the existence of memories that acknowledge and reinforce these kinds of actions by monks. So it can be a really significant risk, even for a monk, to stand up to a group of angry Buddhists seeking to take action against a religious other that they see as a threat. Sharing, connecting, publicizing, repeating these incidents can help to normalize monastic protection of non-Buddhists in this way, setting an important precedent and potentially providing protection for other brave monks and lay people who might want to do similar things in the future. It's also important to emphasize that our, the interviewee here clearly saw the history that he related to us as an important resource, an important identity resource. The relationship between his Muslim family and the Buddhist monastery and monks was an important part of his identity and a set of memories that was available to him when thinking about interreligious coexistence and, and in talking about the ways in which he interacted today um, with his, his uh, neighbors of other religions. Uh, these, these are just some of our, our like some of the memories of a peaceful interreligious coexistence that we heard from our projects. So it should be clear why, why these can be of valuable. But we want to highlight two particular arguments. First, in some specific contemporary cases. We can see that people mention this memory as a way to try to de-escalate the tense situation. For example, our second working people look at a success story where the people seems to be able to diffuse tense situation that might have result in uh, violence. In one case, uh, people calm the situation by reminding others about the fire that had broken out and threatened a monastery, and the Muslim were the one who helped save, save the monk. So, so there are tangible situations that we can point to where people in, in different communities use these peace memories as a way of kind of diffusing contemporary conflict. 
But lots of the people we talked to, as you heard, were really happy to share these memories. We're happy to be prompted to kind of remember them and, and, and think through those histories. And so the second argument that we want to develop is that the very fact that people have these memories, and we're kind of, we're calling them memories, right? But really, we, we can also consider them lived experiences that they have. The very fact that they have them can often be the basis that prompts them to engage critically with anti-Muslim rumors, hate speech, other kinds of propaganda. So what we could say maybe sort of, uh, is that making sense of the contradiction between past memories and experiences and, uh, and present narratives of, of intercommunal sort of conflict requires that people first see that as a contradiction, recognize it as a contradiction. And this is something uh, our research team has also written about. This will be in an article that's coming out in the Journal of Contemporary Asia this year uh, in a special issue on conflict in Myanmar. So we're really just kind of beginning to develop some of these ideas, and we're, we're eager to sort of hear some of your reactions. But we do believe that valuing these memories, making these memories available, can be an important contribution not only to peace building in Myanmar, but also to the, the academic literature on peace building and conflict prevention. So, for example, um, one of the most influential accounts in talking about kind of conflict and interreligious conflict comes uh, from Ashutosh Varshney, who writes about conflict in India. And his argument was that it was institutionalized associational ties, right? So civil society groups, but institutionalized groups that seem to be the most effective in preventing or de-escalating conflict in different parts of India. So certainly that's an important um, argument, but in doing so, he kind of talked down the less tangible connections that people have. And we really kind of see evidence that those less tangible things, such as the memories that we're talking about here, can play an important role. So we want to be clear that we're not saying that the mere existence of these memories automatically creates peace or generates peace. But it does seem clear that they're an important and essential component in peacemaking, in that they're material that either encourages people to think critically or that people can call upon in those particular situations to diffuse sort of violence or tension. So that th those are reasons why we feel like we should emphasize these stories. And there are also reasons why it would be tragic if they're forgotten or reframed as kind of conflict histories or, or if they're no longer available to a younger generation in Myanmar. So in this country that's been so beset by conflict along many different lines, we believe that peacemaking will be harder in proportion to the loss of these memories. Thanks very much.